Yeah, I can't tell you what it was, but I just heard a voice, not out loud, but in my head. And it just said very clearly, you're not safe. And I remember I pulled off, looked down, the lights weren't on. I had a half a bottle of whiskey between my legs. I'm probably driving all over the road. And in that second, I knew the gig was up for me, that something was going to have to happen. And I knew it was going to have to be AA. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of Mr. Gary Kay that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. And I'm going to talk about him in a moment. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Cassandra S., Elizabeth R., and AJ. Cassandra, Elizabeth, and AJ all went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Cassandra, Elizabeth, and AJ, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. All right, now let me talk about Gary a little bit. Gary is a former Methodist pastor. Um, He is a therapist. Uh, He shares about so many things during this episode, but uh, he talks about his life-changing experience with his first sponsee. He talks about his complicated relationship with his father. I'm sure some of you will be able to relate to that. He talks about loneliness. Uh, He talks about the difference between problems and consequences. I had never heard anybody talk about it the way that he did. And and he talks about so much more. So uh, go grab a cup of coffee, uh, sit back, listen to this, uh, soak this one in. Um, I just know you're going to enjoy it. By the way, I will have listener feedback at the end of this episode. Uh, just one quick announcement before we go on to Gary, and that is um, we do have a secret Facebook page. And the way that you get into the secret Facebook page is be is by either being invited by, by someone who's in there already, or you send me your email address that is associated with your Facebook account, and I can send you the invite. Uh, obviously, the secret part is to protect anonymity. This is just a, a, a ton of amazing, like-minded friends of Bill W., Al-Anon, and other 12-step groups. Like I said, you can email me at john at silverspeak.com 
or you can uh, contact me on Instagram, excuse me, it's at Soberspeak, uh, or you can click on the Contact Us tab on the top right part of the Soberspeak website, and you can send us your email that way, and we will get you added to the group. So here's Gary. Enjoy. Today, we are sitting here with Mr. Gary K. Can you say hello, Mr. Gary K? Hello, folks. I'm an alcoholic, Gary K. And your sobriety date is what, Mr. Gary K? Uh, July 25th, 1994. The reason I have Gary in here today is because he was at a um, something called the, the Tri-Cities Speaker uh, Conference that we have here in North Texas, and uh, I was not able to attend that night. But a good friend of mine, a Steve G, had his contact information. He provided me that contact information. I reached out to Gary, and Gary was nice enough to actually drive in today uh, to record this episode for us. And Gary, you're from what area? I live now in Sulphur Springs, Texas. So how long did it take you to drive in? Two hours. Two hours. Well, thank you for making the two-hour trek uh, over to see me. I really do appreciate it. Time is no problem. I used to drive a lot further to get drunk. Okay. <laughs> Good way to put that. <laughs> All right. So, and you know, and I and I do have to tell you this, right? This just went through my head. I know that we were communicating forth back and forth on a, a, a email. And uh, you had uh, requested that I uh, texted you la- text you last night. So, in in the language that you used, I just absolutely loved. You said, "Could you please text me so I have your number on my traveling phone?" Now, I had never heard somebody call it a traveling phone before, and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Right? <laughs> I uh, I don't like cell phones, so I keep mine in the car only when I'm traveling. There you go. I, I love it, Gary. I love it. And by the way, I didn't get the text. You didn't? No. Must have been a wrong number or something. Oh, okay. We'll check well, that out. We'll check that right. out after we get through recording, but right. I, I know I text you, so all right. <laughs> I know that you tell your story, if you will, uh, on a fairly consistent basis, not only in Texas, but in other areas, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Tell me then, what kind of, what motivates you or, you know, what keeps you out there telling your story? I'm really grateful for the way I got raised in AA. I got sober in West Texas, in Odessa. And part of my sobriety, I'll never forget, my first sponsor gave me a big book, turned to that blank page in the front, told me to write my name and dry date in it, and to never make another mark in the book from then on, that that would always be a solution book, and I needed it to be brand new each time. And then he told me my only job was to do what's necessary to maintain that sobriety date. And then in doing that, it would take care of every other area of my life throughout my life. And I was taught, I got my first sponsee at about 11 months. And I've just been taught to never be without one. So I've had someone new to be sponsoring from 11 months until today. So that's my main motivation to be a uh, home group member and to have newcomers. So talk about that first sponsor there. I'm curious about that. Or excuse me, first sponsees. What was that experience like? Do you remember it? It's been a life-changing experience. 
you know, we all, or at least I am one of those who my ego flares up uh, regularly. And early on, I became one of the just the most spiritual people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, <laughs> could get nobody to second that, but I was feeling that way. <laughs> And, you know, you'll hear in meetings that old phrase, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yes. Well, I had begun to see myself very early as a teacher. And my first sponsee uh, was a man about 70 years old. He had moved to West Texas in the early 50s to follow the oil field, had horribly abused several families, uh, had lost his driving privileges. And he asked me to be a sponsor, and I told him yes. And I'll never forget two parts of that. First, I've got running buddies in AA. And I went to them to tell them I got me one. And then I went to my sponsor and said, what did I do? He said, you do with him what I did with you. And so I went to the man's house twice a week, and we got the big book, and we opened it. And we started at the blank page, and we began reading it out loud together. And when it comes to a place of a feeling or something, I would ask him, did you ever experience that? So he could get in touch with his story. And I'm quick. I'm there about six weeks. And it came to me that, good God Almighty, I'm sitting across the kitchen table from my daddy. And I've made my amends. I've taken all the steps. But you know how we can be sometime, at least I was, out on the front porch or at the coffee shop, and we're talking about our past. And from time to time, even though I've made the amends, my dad is still a sorry SOB. And it came to me on that day, you know, this man is exactly like my father. And I'm wanting this guy to get it so bad I can't hardly stand it. But my dad's still an SOB. And it came to me in that moment that I had to begin to change. And I know I can't change myself, but my sponsor said you can provide your higher power demonstrations of willingness. And the thing that came to me is I had to change my vocabulary. I had to change the words that I called people. And in that moment, my dad's had to stop being an SOB, and I've never used that to describe him again since then, except when telling my story. In the beginning, he was a still-suffering alcoholic, and that came out of me like the words were being pulled out of me. He was in a nursing home. He had had a stroke while he was dead drunk and was left in the middle of a lot of anger and resentments. And my sponsor had me go to that nursing home three times a week, and he told me to go in and touch my daddy. And I'd walk in the room, and dad would be angry, and he might be cussing me. But after that night with my first sponsee, I got some hot lather and some razors and towels, and I walked in and put that lather on Daddy and started shaving him. And I'd pull those old feet out from under the sheet, and I put lotion on them, and I started doing his toenails and, and just doing for him. And it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't violins didn't play and the birds didn't sing. But, you know, after about two or three weeks, I walked in, and he was expecting that shave and expecting the touch, and there was no more outburst of anger. And after a few months, he changed from a still-suffering alcoholic to daddy, 
And when he died, when I was five years sober, I was in the hospital holding his hand with a rag on his head, and I didn't lose an SOB. I didn't lose a still-suffering alcoholic. You know, I lost a man I loved. And that's a long story to tell you that out of that, I learned that my sponsees are always the teacher, and I'm the student. You know, I, I can't learn recovery. I have to experience it. And my whole life, I tried to learn things, you know, and lived in my head. And I found out in AA, we do recovery with our feet and to experience being changed. And so that led to a lot of things, you know, out on the front porch, the children's mother from time to time was still that bitch. And I realized out of this experience about my dad is I had to change that vocabulary. You know, I love my children. I don't want them to have a bitch for a mother. I want them to have a mother. So I had to rename her my children's mother. And those are my children's grandparents and my children's aunts and uncles. And very gradually, we don't change ourselves, but I experience being changed where I love page 25 in our book. There is a solution. And right down in the middle of it, it says that what we get is we get a new attitude about life. It doesn't tell us we get new circumstances or new conditions, but we get a new attitude. And when I began to use different vocabulary about the people in this world, I've got a brand new world. I don't live in a dog-eat-dog, everybody's out to get you, all the politics are going to hell, and all. that's just, I don't want to live in that world. I live in a world where this is the greatest time I've ever known, and there are more opportunities to just be present in the midst of the world to try to be it's just try to be uh what can i add instead of what's in it for me so that's what i've learned out of sponsorship you know that if i'll make myself available this experience with each new guy is going to change me it's going to teach me and it's going to keep me settled right in the big middle of aa Tell me a little bit about your background. Obviously, we know about your mother, excuse me, your father. and I've got an older brother who we were never close, and I could talk for two hours now about the gift of um, thanks to this recovery program. I've always had a brother, but for the last 24 and a half years, my brother has a brother. Ah. And that's made all the difference in the world. You know, uh, there's that line in the fourth step. And it's there in the fear inventory, but it says we're here to play the role as he assigns it. For me, it's the same roles after recovery as before. It's son, son, dad, dad, friend, friend, brother, brother, employee. They're the same roles, only now as he assigns it. And I came to understand those are not my children. I'm their father. That's not my brother. I'm his brother. That's not my job. I'm their employee. And, of course, I can't live in that all the time. But by trying to surrender this program, the more I can do that, my only job is just to be the best dad, brother, friend, employee I can be. And how they act and what they do is none of my business. My business is just try to be the best in my role that I can be with them. So... uh Grew up in that family with an older brother. I uh, was always afraid of my dad. And as soon as I could, by mid-teenage years, I became very condescending of him. And I loved him deeply. 
and I find out it's only in recovery that people can understand that dichotomy. But all throughout my life, you know, I uh, excelled in school, but was a goofy kid. I think we're all goofy kids. I think all kids are probably goofy. (laughs) (laughs) All people are kind of goofy. But uh, I worshipped and venerated my mother and, of course, hid everything from her because, uh, you know, the big book says the alcoholic more than most leads a double life. And I very early on decided I didn't want to bring any worry or any harm, but there were things I wanted to do, so I made sure that I, uh, I appeared to be this kind of kid, and then when I'd get with other folks, I would be this kind of kid, begin leading that double life. Mm-hmm. Didn't drink in high school. My mother had asked us to promise not to because, like many who've grown up around alcoholism and highly religious homes, for them, it's the whiskey. If you just won't drink, you'll be okay. And, of course, I'm to later learn that that's not true at all for us. <laughs> but I went off to college, Texas A&M, had my first drink when I was 19. You're an Aggie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I graduated uh, from A&M, married a uh, beautiful young woman my senior year, and graduated, left A&M, uh, came to Dallas, went to SMU. First thoughts, I took the LSAT, and I thought about being a lawyer. And I'm real glad I didn't. I'd probably be rotten in a federal prison somewhere <laughs> if I'd been a lawyer as crooked as I was. <laughs> But I, uh, I went to seminary at Perkins School of Theology. Uh, in my youth, that Methodist church was always the, the safe place, the fun place. I'd always loved that. My mother participated in it. So I'm assuming that means you are a pastor. Am I, I was a United Methodist pastor for 14 years uh, until they decided they really didn't need me quite that much. <laughs> I tell people, and, and, you know, we say our stories jokingly, but uh, I drank a little too much whiskey, and we came to a great misunderstanding about the laying on of hands. (laughs) And my version was definitely not the correct one. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I, I do... Enjoy that we can laugh in our stories, but always like to share with new people. You know, a lot of hurt was done. A lot of damage was done. A lot of trust was broken. And a great deal of amends had to be made uh, because that's like a rock thrown in the pond and the ripples go out to touch family members, in-laws, you know, church members, spouses of other people. It just goes on and on and on and on. And But that was in December of 1984. I guess you would have to say from 84 until about 89, I was pretty much unemployed. I told my sponsor early on I was self-employed, and he said, no, no. You were unemployed. <laughs> you were unemployable. <laughs> you know, that was the deal. I could get a job. I could interview well, and then I'd get a paycheck. And um, I'm gone. Divorced that mother of my children and uh, proceeded to get married. I, I've been married most of my adult life. 
before AA. It was to four different women, but I was married most of the time. (laughs) 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 And uh, I haven't had to inflict that damage on uh, women since I've got into recovery. But uh, I do tell people in AA, first of all, that shouldn't be funny. Right. <laughs> That's kind of the norm. <laughs> right. But you don't have to give the number. You can just say several. I've been married several times. That's right. That works for trips to jail and jobs and careers. We don't need to go in. This happened several times. You know, and people in these rooms understand that. You know, I just I went on thinking I was okay the whole time. Yeah, you know, I'm just waiting for the big break and uh, just continued. I tell people I didn't hit a bottom. Uh, I just got used to mine on the way down. Mm. You know, and where Bill writes, our lives became the only normal one. You know, I never noticed over the years. It's like when we, when I graduated from high school, it's like I had a life that was, you know, wide and big. And over the years, it just continued to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And, you know, when I heard them talking about alcohol can kill you, I began to experience alcoholism is what kills us, you know. Only it, it's not always quick. In my case, it was one sweet dream and one sweet hope and one sweet relationship, one by one by one, until you come to that day and you look around and it's just you. And the word that's used most to describe our illness in our literature is that god-awful loneliness. And it, um, it seems like it creeps up on us, but it's really been there the whole time. We get ready for that day when something's got to change. And if you're like I am, you don't know that's the day. You don't know it's the moment. You know, I do tell people that the God y'all have introduced me to doesn't have just one moment of grace for a a moment of awareness. You know, I I believe it's been extended to all of us since before time began. You know, this just happened to be in July the 24th of 1994, the first moment I responded to. And I'd had many before that I could have responded to. So what was that day like and why? Is there any way... You know, I, it wasn't any worse or any that July the 24th was a Sunday. I came to that morning. I went to a bartender's house and just almost begged and forced him to give me a couple of uh, fifths of whiskey. And I sat home. And, you know, you've always heard it's very dangerous for an alcoholic to think. And it's just deadly when we think and drink at the same time. And so I sat in my dirty little house and I began to look around at that morning. The current wife wasn't there. I'd gone out Memorial Day weekend without her. And I'd uh, met a young lady in a bar and it's like the stars had aligned. I tell people in meetings, if I'd been in AA, I would have known it was just a God thing. I tried using that line with my sponsor about a young Al-Anon I was making eyes at after I got here. And I said, Jerry, I think it's a God thing. And he said, Gary, God is not a pimp. (laughs) 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 I had to experience that the hard way. But 
I had met this young lady, brought her home with me, and I forgot my wife was there. And so I'm going through another divorce. Oh, it, no. It really hadn't bothered me that much. But on that Sunday, I started thinking that I'm left with the drunk truck, and she's got the car that runs. And I started getting angry about that, you know, that uh, the transmission's going out of the truck, which, by the way, I wouldn't have had any of that because the truck was my dad's I got when he had that stroke. All the furniture in the house, the pots, the pans, everything was my dad's. If he hadn't had stuff, I wouldn't have had anything. But I'm still viewing him then in a very condescending way. You know, later on, I'm to discover we had the same illness. If I get to be sick, he gets to be sick. Mm. And as a drunk, he did a lot better than I did because he at least could always make a living and support himself, and I couldn't do that. But for some reason on that day, I got angry, and she still had some stuff at the house, and I vaguely remember getting trash bags and putting her stuff in those trash bags, writing one of those, F you, you've ruined my life, I'm only going to give you one more chance notes that we can write right. and put in them. And, didn't know where she was, knew where her mother was. That night, I vaguely relax, recollect going over and screaming, yelling, throwing those bags into that woman's yard and driving home the six miles on a road I've been stopped three times in the previous six months. And you know, I can't tell you what it was, but I just heard a voice, not out loud, but in my head. And it just said very clearly, you're not safe. And I remember I pulled off, looked down, the lights weren't on. I had a half a bottle of whiskey between my legs. I'm probably driving all over the road. And in that second, I knew the gig was up for me, that something was going to have to happen. And I knew it was going to have to be AA. From my uh, profession, I was also a licensed therapist. They had yanked those licenses. So you're a therapist as well? Yeah. A therapist and a pastor. Yeah. And um, so I had knowledge about AA, but I didn't know anything about AA at the same time. But I knew that's what I'd have to do. So I drove home, did what you would probably do, sat in my chair and drank the rest of the whiskey and waited for the day to break and drove to the man's office that I knew was in AA. He agreed. I had a little problem. That's when the miracle began to happen for me. He put me in his truck, left his job, put me in his truck, and he took me to a meeting. And I'm so grateful that I got dropped in among a group of people that didn't say things like, here's a list, or if you really want it, you'll go get it, or that kind of thing. You know, I got dropped into a group of people that knew that Bill went looking for Bob. Bob didn't go looking for Bill. And when I walked in that day, they were on me like birds on a June bug. If you stay out there long enough, you lose the insurance, you lose the support. I didn't have the DTs my first 20 years of drinking. I had them the last seven and I still to this day think I'm the only person in Odessa, Texas that ever got chased by camels and giraffes. But I remember that during that detox time. Only to find out later that I was never alone for those four days. 
the guy that was to become my sponsor on that first meeting had assigned some of his pigeons to me, and they were with me around the clock. They were taking me to meetings, making sure that I didn't die, and feed me concoctions and so forth to detox with. And that's why I'm here today is because I got dropped into a group of people that believed in keeping an eye on the door. You know, nobody ever ought to walk into one of our rooms that somebody doesn't greet them and get a number and give a number, and, and we call them. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You know, I'll hear people today, and it, it sounds to me like it's a fraternity experience. You know, I want you to do this. I'll be your sponsor, but call me every morning at such and such time. I couldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he called me two or three times a day. And then at about the end of the second week, he called and he said, now, Gary, I want you to hang up right quick and call me right back. And I did. He said, no, do it again. I did. And he said, see, you can call me. So (laughs) now, from now on, I want you to be calling me this time. (laughs) He didn't force that on to me in the beginning. You know, he let me experience the fact that I was important to him. And he kept telling me, I'm going to get more out of this than you will. And, of course, I didn't believe it. And today I know that's a fact. We are the ones that gain every time we try to help somebody else. That's right. Okay, so we'll be continuing our conversation with Gary Kay in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us at SoberSpeak.com on the World Wide Web. Uh, There you'll find all our other back episodes as well. You can also find the donate button on our website that if the spirit moves you to use it, you can. Please keep in mind, this podcast is funded by you, the listener. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization. Through our own contributions, we are not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, now back to Mr. Gary. All right, so you're in AA. You're getting a little bit of a taste of sponsorship on the front end. So take me from there. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of like a whirlwind. If you're new and listening to this, I share with people my first about seven months felt like the worst time I've ever lived in my life. Now, it wasn't. It was all feelings. And I know that early on, he had me stand by the door and greet people on Friday nights, which I did not want to do. And a man came up, and I hope never to forget this. He said, how are you doing, Gary? And I thought he wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) So I just started trying to tell him. And he said, no, 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 no. You're trying to tell me how you feel. I don't care how you feel. What are you doing? How are you doing? Did you pray this morning? Did you make some phone calls today? I see you're at a meeting now. Did you go to work today? How are you doing? Let's gauge our recovery by how we're doing and not how we're feeling. And somehow that that hammered in, you know, that I'm just to be concerned about what, you know, I try to do each day and just leave the feelings alone. And for me, for the most part, I don't believe I've spent 15 minutes in the last mm, 23 years concerned with how I feel, you know, because I've just found that the result of this design for living really works. Uh, You know, it's not 
I have disappointments and ups and downs like everyone else, but they're just they're they're not that personal anymore. If that makes any sense, I experienced out of this recovery of, and I'd say these two terms. You ask what happened after that. You know, I I hated myself when I came here for the father I'd become. I have twins, a son and a daughter, and they were nineteen, and I just I just had total disgust for myself about the father I'd become. And I remember uh, Jerry sitting down with me. Well, it, it's like the first two or three times we met, he we met for a couple of hours, and he listened to me intently. And then I don't think he ever listened to me again after that. He, he remembered <laughs> the things I had said and used those against me. From <laughs> oh. But I sat down with him and the divorce. I didn't know if I wanted her to come back or wanted her to stay away. The IRS had put me on their amends list my second weekend here. They put you on their amends <laughs> yeah, list? you don't have to worry about putting them on your list. They'll put you on theirs. <laughs> I hadn't filed my taxes in about eight years. And, oh, and uh, my kids wouldn't talk to me, and uh, you know, my brother wouldn't let me come to his house. Now, if you're listening to this, all those things were factual to me, but they weren't true. But they were my perception. You know, my brother wouldn't let me come to his house. Yes, he would, but my perception was that he wouldn't. You know, my kids hated me. No, they didn't. But it you know, Bill talks about and resentments, those that are both real or imagined. And I had a lot of imagined stuff going on, but it was real. I couldn't support myself. And I remember Jerry saying to me, Gary, those are not problems you're telling me. And I thought he didn't hear me. You know, the divorce, the kids, the job, the health, the legal things, he said, those are not problems. Those are consequences. Mm-hmm. And your whole life, you've been trying to fix the consequences. And you've never identified the problem that keeps spewing them out. And we're not too concerned about your consequences. If you're coming in here to get sober, to get your wife back, or to get your kids to love you, or to get a good job, you may as well hit the door, because that's not what AA is about. He said, I can show you a way that's worked for me for you will never have to take another drink for as long as you live, provided that you do a few simple things on a daily basis. We're not promising you that all those consequences will get fixed the way you want them fixed. But we're telling you that if you'll do these things, they're all going to get healed one of these days, and you're going to be okay with them. But that's all we've got to offer you because the problem is not alcohol, it's alcoholism. Mm. And you're going to find out that alcohol doesn't cause alcoholism. It treats it. And you're going to have to discover, and you will discover, out of this book, a new treatment for alcoholism. And it's not about quitting drinking. He said, quit quitting. You've not had much luck with that. (laughs) I've never met any of us that were all that good at quitting. And what they taught me was... Quit quitting and start starting. If you'll do these things, you won't do that thing. But you don't just get to sit on the fence and do no thing. And doing these things will provide a life that, well, it's on page 100 of our book, that first full paragraph. That that could be, we could have skipped this whole 45 minutes. <laughs> that paragraph sums it up. 
Each day is the day you and the new man must walk the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. We found the things which come to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were far greater than any we could have imagined. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. And for me, that's the greatest set of promises in our book, and it's true. It's quite a promise. It's, it's, it's all right there, and it involves that walking day by day. In the beginning, he was the one walking the new man through. And that man and my current sponsor and uh, really the AA I got dropped into said, you know, that's what we're here for is to try to help others. And if it sounds like out there you've got to have somebody to be sponsoring every day, that's not the only way we can help others. You know, I think for me, showing up at committed home group meetings, claim your two square feet. We all get two square feet in here, you know, and I claim mine. And to be to be there, seated in that chair, having the coffee made, having the doors open, going over and just greeting someone and acknowledging people when they do come in and then remembering their name when they come back. There's all kinds of ways that we can be of service to other people, but I keep wanting to draw it back to me feeling good and my life getting good. You know, I would have stopped the third step prayer with relieve me of the bondage of myself, you know, <laughs> uh, take away my difficulties. Amen. That's all. Yeah. I want. Right. I'd skip the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> and I would have, I would have missed the whole deal if I skipped that. That's right. So, uh, this is about, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm just, uh, you can see me over here writing left and right because, uh, there's so many little gems in there. What would you describe, Gary, as being the best thing that has happened to you uh, in sobriety? I think they're yet to come. A couple of years ago, someone was asking me a similar question. They said, what do you want out of life? And I said, just more of the same. Whatever it is, you know, because the best I could do. Uh, July 25th, 1994 is my default. That's the best I could do with my life. And for me, I don't deserve anything more than that. I don't, you know, there's the, I don't have any rights or any of that stuff. I did the best I could do. And that's where it got me. And so if I can remember each day where I was and who I was, uh, then today's fantastic. You know, because that guy will always drink again. So part of my job is to not be that guy. But... You know, having great friends, you come in here thinking life is all over. You know, you can't drink anymore. How are you going to eat pizza or barbecue? You know, you never have sex again. You know, it's uh, your life is just all over. And to find out that, uh, boy, I was wrong on all those counts. And then when I'm when I'm nine years sober, my daughter and I did abandon my children. And she called to tell me that could I wait until she brought the baby home from the hospital that she needed some help that first week home. And I got invited to go help her with my granddaughter that week. Now, that's nothing special about me. 
but that's what happens. You know, that's the grace of God through the 12 step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It allows us to be present in our own lives. And, you know, having that granddaughter uh, and just being present for that, I thought that was uh, be the most marvelous thing that ever happened. And somewhere in the second or third year after her birth, I discovered, no, you know, I'm in as much as I enjoy being a grandpa. I'm so much more in love watching my wife and her husband be parents, (sighs) you know, and, and to realize, you know, that. If there's such a thing as a chain, it's getting broken here, you know, and I know that's nothing but grace. And I lived in Odessa. They lived in Sulphur Springs. And for 14 months, I drove 900-mile round trips every other weekend just to go to be a grandpa. Wow. And my sponsor one day said, what in the hell are you doing living here when they're there? I I would never have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, I, we talked about it. I decided to move, and um, he said, we'll do it differently. Give two weeks' notice when you go into work tomorrow. I bought a little HUD house. Uh, said, call a realtor, put your house up for sale. We'll take care of things on this end, and then you'll go determine where you're going to live and where you're going to work. And I'm, I'm going to be quick to say I could do that because nobody else there were no financial responsibilities for other people at this time. My house sold in eight days. Uh, I went into, but this time I'd got my a license back. I'm, I'm retired now as a psych therapist, and I've gotten those licenses back. Went in to tell uh, the director of the hospital where I was working as a clinical director. The medical director came in and said, we've been waiting for this to happen. We figured you'd be moving. She called a friend of hers she had gone to medical school with, and he offered me a job sitting there in the office in, the, in a new location. And stuff just fell into place. Now, it's about six years later when I realized what happens. Do you find that in your recovery? You know, stuff will happen today. I don't know what's going on today, but when I look back, and that's exactly what it says on page 100, when we look back. We see the things which come to us and the difference between this spiritual walk and the way I used to live is I was always out to get things and to make things happen. And I just doesn't have to be the truth for anybody, but it's else, but it's my truth. It's all in hindsight, isn't it? You know, trust God, clean house, work with others. That's the only program we have. And if I'll do that, then this life comes to me far greater than any I could have imagined. So when fear and selfishness and dishonesty and resentment and all those things crop up in your life, just like it says is going to happen in in the big book, right? Give me if an example, if you can, of how you handle uh, what sort of tools you use, uh, possibly some sort of example uh, in your life uh, for new, new people listening out there. And even people who've been around a while, like me, Dave Truth. It's been my experience, and now is my belief, that I cannot ask a new person to do anything that I'm not doing, which is one of the reasons I don't do very much. (laughs) (laughs) It's simple, repeated, daily 
efforts. Repetition confirms and strengthens habit until faith becomes natural. So early on, Jerry told me to get up every morning and pray. I remember telling him, I'm not even sure if I believe in God. And he said, damn it, we don't care if you believe in God or not. Prayer is an action. I want you to take the actions. God will prove God to you. And that'll be interesting for a lot of people in that you're a United Methodist pastor. You're coming into AA, and you're struggling with a conception of God. You know, and I wouldn't even call it a struggle. There, I found a line in the forward of the second edition. And then Bill uses the same line again in chapter 11. And when I could finally read it, you know, the first couple times through reading the book with Jerry and then with uh, later on, I read it again with my current sponsor. But the first couple times, it was just uh, words, not retention. But there in the forward of the second edition, Bill says that they had Though they couldn't accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, they had come to believe, and he outlined some things. And the last one is the belief in and the dependence upon a higher power. And it hit me in a second. There's never been a moment in my life that I haven't believed in God. But there had never been a moment in my life that I had depended on God. Uh-huh. And I look back through all the theology that I had studied and, and all the great theologians, and, and I had a fantastic experience being a pastor. I just had to become a drunk to get in here and get it out of my head and into my feet. You know, it's, that it's really very, very simple stuff. But what that helped me with was that, you know, it, it says in the book, and then in the 12 and 12, he, he mentions it uh, in more depth. You remember when you first got here and you heard people saying, I'm a grateful alcoholic? Right. I'd say, like hell you are. Not out loud. But <laughs> right. In my head. I understand. But in the third step, in the 12 and 12, it says, those of us who are alcoholic can indeed count ourselves as fortunate. For we have each had our own near fatal encounter with the juggernaut of, and I was sure it was going to say alcohol, and it says self-reliance. Ah. And I began to then have a little more understanding of what I got out of the doctor's opinion in the first three chapters of the book. I've only had two gods in my entire life. One of them was whiskey, <laughs> and the other one was me, self-reliance, no matter what I might have said and learned and how well I could preach. You know, I remember one Sunday morning about a year before they decided they didn't need me anymore. <laughs> and I had a large church. And I looked out on a sea of people, and I remember having a conscious thought behind the pulpit of, these people are really getting something from this, but nothing for me. Uh-huh. And uh, just you know nothing because it was all in my head and that dependence upon helped me to see that my problem and you talked about working with new people was self-reliance you know and there's no way to just tell people that Uh, that's why the book taking a person through the doctor's opinion and then going through bill's story and the uh, you know, the more about alcoholism and 
those first three chapters and Jerry Cup's saying, did you ever feel that way? That ever happened to you? And I found out what he was doing was what we all do. He was trying to get me in touch with my own life experience with alcohol. And in doing that to discover my own life experience with self-reliance. Because none of us are going to believe anything because anybody else says it. Until I can look into it and see out of my own experience that that's true, am I going to understand that it was true for me? And so it was in going through that that I found the, you know, he takes us to page 44 for our two questions, not 20. If when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, or, and I love it's not an and there, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely, then you're probably an alcoholic. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. If that be the case, you're suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual answer is going to be the answer. So in doing that, I was one of the lucky ones. Very early on, I realized that alcoholism is our book talks about it. And as those people that got me sober talked about it, it's not a therapeutic illness. And that therapy is not going to touch it. It's a spiritual illness, and it's going to need a spiritual answer. And so I was able to see, you know, because I was a good therapist. I was a lousy pastor, but I was a great preacher. There's a difference, I found out. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know my own story. One of the first big surrenders anybody has to do is to give up the story of us that we bring in here with us. And I think that comes from, oh, I tell my new guys, there's one word you'll hear in AA meetings, and please get rid of it. It's a dangerous word in AA, and that word is denial. It's a therapeutic concept. I call it psychobabble. The big book's got a much better word called delusion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the, it shouldn't be difficult for any of us to accept in that second step that we're just crazy as hell. <laughs> you know, we've lived in delusion. Denial means you know something's wrong and you do it anyway. Delusion is we believe our stuff. Right. And in order to be an alcoholic, the way I'm an alcoholic, I had to believe lies that I told myself. I don't think I or you or anybody could live the way I and most likely you have lived out of the truth mm -hmm. of what I was really doing to my mother and my children and the wife and the family. The truth of that, I believe, would have put me somewhere with a gun in my mouth. I couldn't have stood it. I had to believe I'm okay. You're not hurting anybody. You know, leave me. all that stuff. I had to believe those lies. We come into recovery and you have that moment of grace and you begin going through the literature and getting hold of your own experience and you begin discovering those lies. And it's only for me to discovering them through taking these steps and then taking others through them that I can let them go. They're always, it's going to be a lifetime. There's always stuff to let go of. But I would share with people what what I experienced was, and, and you got to go back to your first real drunk. You know, 
first I call it on purpose drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a, a place in the first doctor's opinion that gives the first description of us in the big book. And it says, maladjusted to life and full flight from reality, outright mental defectives. You know, welcome to AAC. <laughs> <laughs> but if you read the book, that doesn't make us an alcoholic. Everybody out there, uh, I always ask the Alanons, how about you before recovery? Full flight from reality, maladjusted to life. There's a, we're not the only people with resentments and fears and a uh, real and imagined, uh, all this stuff. Everybody driving by is just like we are. What makes me an alcoholic is that when I drank alcohol, it's like it could reach in me wherever the knob was and give it a turn, and I had the perception of being adjusted. Mm-hmm. That's, a fir- that's a powerful spiritual experience, but it is an experience. It's not learned. It's not thought about. There's no process groups. There's no therapy. There's no writing about it. You drink the stuff, and you have that perception of being adjusted. And, you know, it might do that for a lot of other people, normal drinkers. But I've got the second part of that. Uh, That's what I call the mental obsession being born. You know, that when that happened to me, man, I remember that first time. I could dance. I could talk to women. I was was on the go. Mm Mm-hmm. And that happens to a lot of other people. But what doesn't happen to them is what we call the allergy. You know, they have a stopping point. I don't have a guaranteed stopping point. You know, I've been out drinking with my brother and other folks, and they'll have one or two drinks, and they quit. And they, I'm on my fifth or sixth, and they're like, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking in the beginning, hell, I'm one of those people that was born with a huge capacity. (laughs) That's right. Because I didn't think I was drunk. (laughs) I found out later that drunk's a terrible term. It's very subjective. (laughs) You know, everybody's got their own definition of that. Uh, The police don't give you tickets for driving while drunk. They give tickets for driving while intoxicated. That's right. There's a difference there. (laughs) But I had the allergy. And didn't know it. I mean, it had me right out of the chute. Uh, and I'm off and running thinking I'm in control. But there's a third element that makes us an alcoholic. And it's, it's the, I don't know, it, it's probably the, the most dangerous part of it. Is I've never met one of us, and I can tell you I certainly was this way that was not maladjusted to life before I ever took my first drink. And I call maladjustment being spiritually sick. Maladjustment is, you know, all the things that I've done up until that time to make me appear to be okay with other people. But I'm maladjusted before I drink. And then I drink, and it gives me the perception of being adjusted and I'm off and running, living with a set of principles that I've already had. And the drinking doesn't make me do any of the, quote, bad things that I do. That was a, you know, how many of us have said, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was drunk, wasn't drunk. It's not true. Mm-mm. You know, I never did come out of a blackout now at the Salvation Army helping them fold and prize clothes. <laughs> I was always someplace I ought not to be doing. Jerry started off the same Gary drunk words 
or sober thoughts. And some of those things you've said to people while drunk, the alcohol didn't make you say that. That was already up there. Alcohol didn't make me cheat on my wives. It didn't make me steal. It didn't make me lie. I did all those things because I was a cheat and a thief and a liar. And if all I do is quit drinking, then I'm still a thief and a cheat and a liar. That's right. And I had used self-reliance in the times I'm not going to drink. Well, after a while, the color starts going out of life. And I'm good for, at the most, four months until people are on my last nerve. I'm bored. That was mine. The book calls it Restless, Irritable, and Discontented, that I'd get bored. And then I want to drink again. Not to start a two-year run, but to just get a little adjustment. And I never know about that allergy and that the alcohol is going to kick in and then I'm powerless. And to discover that step one is not that I'm powerless over alcohol when I drink it. I'm powerless over drinking it. Step one's a bad step. It means I am going to drink again, period. Because mm-hmm. I don't have any way to manage as you were asking at the beginning of the question, you know, the feelings, the emotions, the unmanageability is not the divorces and the money and all of that. The unmanageability is that without alcohol, I don't have any way to get that adjustment when I'm getting sad or angry or bored or any of that stuff. And, you know, it's a progressive illness. There are things you've heard people say the alcohol quits working. And in my case, I mean, you, it's just semantics. But my experience is I became so spiritually sick and reached a point with the spiritual sickness when even the power of alcohol would no longer touch it. Mm. Alcohol was as powerful as it ever was. But I hit that point where I could look up at my mom and stepdad's picture. They had been killed by a drunk driver in 1988. I'm the one, the only person at the funeral. He's a colonel in the Air Force and a big military funeral. And I'm so drunk when they do the 21-gun salute. I'm snot-nosed and sniveling and in the fetal position by the grave. How can you be so sorry as to be drunk at your mother's funeral? And the time came when the whiskey wouldn't touch that anymore. Or I could look at the picture of my two children, and I could say to people what a great dad I was, but the time came when the whiskey wouldn't touch that anymore. And we just get so spiritually sick that we're just left with drinking for oblivion at some point. You know, and it's not it's not doing the adjustment anymore. It's just all we know to do. Our life becomes the only normal one. But that all starts with before drinking, I and I believe all of us have always had secrets. There's stuff we didn't want the other people to know, particularly stuff that worked to make me feel better. And I start drinking, I've already got a lot of secrets going on. And when I got my current sponsor, I mean, I'm 13 months into the program, taking the steps, I'm sponsoring people. And the first night we met, he said two things to me that have been true from that night to this said there's two things we're never going to work on as problems. One of those is sadness, and the other is grief. 
So those are not problems to be fixed. They're part of the human condition. And we've got to find a way to live where eventually we can have many emotions in the same day, where before one emotion captured the entire day or week or month. Mm -hmm. But he said, if you're around people, if you're in relationships, if you care about people, there are going to be events for sadness all the time. And the same with grief. It's going to come from time to time. But that's not to be fixed. That's part of the human condition. And the best we get to be is human beings. And we've never really tried doing that. We've been playing God forever. And we didn't like the way we felt. So we wanted to change it. And what we have in here is a way, and it says it on page 62 of the big book, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all of our trouble, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-delusion. And what I've experienced in here is that I want every emotion there is. I want all of them. I just want never to be driven by any one of them again. Right. And we've got a way in here to not be driven, but it's done one day at a time. And it's called, you know, you get up in the morning, you do that 11th step. You make your commitments that day and keep them. Mm -hmm. And you work with other people. And if you're serious about six and seven, you're going to do a 10th step. That's the only way we can work on six and seven is by 10. And you don't do the damn thing in your head. Because their head's where the trouble is. You know? <laughs> I've said to people for years, using my mind to fix my mind is like asking my wife's boyfriend to help with the marriage. You know? <laughs> I want to get some great ideas, but they're not going to work too well. So I have to, uh, I, I still meet with my sponsor once a week. We do it by phone because of distance. Then we get together every couple of months. But I have to do a written 10th step before I call him. You mentioned earlier, you know, as the book said, when these things crop up, well, a crop is something I water, I fertilize, I tend, I take care of. Right. Know? And and doing a 10th step, you know, it's it's weeding. But what makes it possible is the second thing Steve said on that day. Your job is going to become totally transparent with me and i know it's not going to happen in one day it's going to be over time but the spiritual life is a transparent life and the only way that we can live uh, the way it says in the 12 and 12 somewhat happily and usefully ho is to become transparent and we started being secretive long time before we started drinking and so I had to, I had, and that, that was the, probably the real struggle, was to become transparent. And in the beginning, it was just with Steve. And there are still some days I've got things going on, but I don't have anything I'm planning on doing or thinking about that I don't share with him. And he's never told me, don't do that. A few times he said, Gary, this one's down there going to kill you. I want you to do an extra committed meeting each week and find you a newcomer right away because this one's going to be hard to get through and i get started in it and if i'm keeping a secret i find out i can't share in the meeting then i become afraid of my sponsees are going to find out this you know all those things and if i've got a secret 
Well, it's like I tell my guys, AA doesn't tell you what's right or wrong. You want to watch pornography on your computer. You want to get on those sex sites. You want to do computer gambling. We don't care. Just put that computer on the kitchen table where your wife and kids can see what you're doing. Because what you're doing isn't going to get you. But having behaviors that you have to keep a secret, those are going to kill you. Because if I've got a secret, I lose all intimacy with all people. Because keeping my secret becomes more important than being at one with you. And that's, that's worked real well for this guy that was a pastor and discovered I didn't have any morals. <laughs> you know, right and wrong. Just now I tell people the idea of sin never bothered me for some reason. You know, it was just kind of excited me more than anything else. Right. <laughs> and I get into AA and I find out I only had one real moral my whole life. And that's don't get caught. Don't get found out. And I come in here and find out six and seven for me is be transparent. You can do anything you want to so long as you aren't ashamed of it or you don't have to keep it a secret. But if you got to keep it a secret, it's going to kill you. So my morality is then if I've got behavior going on that I don't want certain people to know about, then I better not be doing that behavior. And that doesn't mean I'm going to tell my children all about my dating life or any of that stuff. But it means today, if I fall over dead right now, and they start going through my home or my computer or my checkbook or my credit cards, there's not going to be any surprises there that I'm afraid for somebody to find out. Because it's kind of like um, we had a guy at the 710 Club. I'll finish this part of the question with this. I loved him to death. Uh, my sponsor took me over. That was a club in Midland. His name was uh, Gene Grimes. He had about 30 years. And the first time I ever met him, he got behind that podium at 710 Club and said, in the end, this life of ours means you're going to be where you said you'd be doing what you said you'd do when you said you would do it. And when Gene said that, I knew in that moment that nobody had ever ever, ever been able to depend on me to do those things. And I knew I couldn't do them that day, but I knew it was one of those things to strive towards, uh, being uh, stable enough and transparent enough and excited enough about the grace of God through this program to be where I say I'm going to be, doing what I said I would do when I said I'd do it. And you find out that's all anybody's ever wanted from you. Nobody has ever really put big expectations off on me. (laughs) I thought that. I put them all on there. But they just want us, you know, they just want you to be that goofy person you are consistently with everybody and just be present. We don't care about your presence. We don't care about what you buy us. Just to be present in life. And this program allows that. Well, there is so much to chew on there. Uh, you have... It's um, all in the book. Yeah, it, it is all in the book. Well, it is all in the book, but you articulate it in uh, a wonderful fashion, and I appreciate it. And, you know, you were asking me a little bit before we got started, you know, how I ended up starting this podcast, and I told you the story. But the other thing that really gets me jazzed is that is that I can bring in folks like you 
and we can have a little sit down session like we're having coffee together we are having coffee mm-hmm. together <laughs> you have a cup yeah. of coffee i have a cup of coffee it's just like we're sitting Decaf down on my part okay <laughs> <laughs> and and we can just have a conversation and i get to share this conversation with a lot of different people out there and they get to to reap the benefits of it. And when I say the benefits of it, you're kind of pearls of wisdom, if you will. And uh, I so, so, so much appreciate you stopping by, Mr. Gary Kay. And uh, I know our listeners are going to appreciate it very much. So I always end the uh, the podcast by reading, by reading from page 164 of the big book. Last couple paragraphs here, it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, such as Gary and myself, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you so much again, Gary. Appreciate you coming by. Thank you. God bless. Gary is something else, isn't he? He is uh, quite a gentleman, and he has a voice born for podcasting or uh, on the radio. Uh, that deep voice just uh, is something else. I, I really enjoyed spending time with Gary. So let me know what you think about Gary. Um, send me a, an email to john at soberspeak.com. Um, or just send me an email about any of the other guests that you've heard, or just send me an email if anything's on your mind. I'd love to hear from you. So now we have listener feedback. Mr. Wade writes in on Instagram. He says, Hi, John. Love the program. I listen to it on my headphones while I'm sitting at my potter's wheel at work. It definitely helps keep me on track in my early recovery. Keep up the good work and send some of your warm Texas air up here to Minnesota. (laughs) We need it at this time of year, Wade. So Wade is sitting on his potter's wheel listening to us. I absolutely love it. I'm always wondering what people are doing while they're listening to uh, the episodes. So, uh, if you send me any feedback, uh, let me know. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm just, I'm just curious as how you listen to it. If you're in a car, if you're at a potter's wheel, whatever you may be doing. All right. Melissa writes in also on Instagram. She says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank yous. She said, I am a week sober today and I found you on day three. Oh, God bless you, Melissa. Your podcast has been a savior when I'm overthinking things or feeling stressed at work. I'm sure you hear that a lot, but you have made a huge difference in my life. Double exclamation point. Smiley face, Melissa. Well, you know, I have heard that a few times, Melissa, but I promise you it never gets old. And congratulations on your early sobriety. Keep it up. Bill writes in via email. He says, Hey, I'm a dude living in Wilmington, Delaware. My story follows much of the framework, which you have heard just replaced their specific stories with mine. I am the variety that had major health implications due to my drinking. That is what finally took my, took me down. I'm grateful that it did. I am lucky to have circumvented any legal repercussions from my drinking. I am still married and I have two boys. My sober date is 
October 11, 2018. This is my first real run of sobriety. I stuck my toes in a few times, but never committed. I have been using a variety of resources in my sobriety, uh, one of which is listening to podcasts. Podcasts can change my mindset if I am having an internal battle. It gets me back on the right path of thinking. I have also listened to Recovery Elevator as a podcast as well. I discovered it by searching iTunes podcast and your podcast popped up. So I thought I'd give it a go. Take care of Bill. Well, that's great, Bill. I'm glad you're giving it a real shot this time. All right. Jonathan writes in and Jonathan is an Al-Anon member and he says, Hey, John, all of the podcasts over the last month have been a vital part of my recovery process. As I stated before, I have my own recovery in Al-Anon, and I am learning more each day about the family disease of alcoholism. My daughter, who is also a member of Alateen and I, recently went to the South Carolina State Al-Anon slash Alateen Convention. So I met many wonderful people in this fellowship. Well, it really sounds like your family is getting involved in recovery. And I'm so, so glad to hear that, Jonathan. Best to you, your family, and all those around you who can benefit from your recovery. Mark M. M writes in from where he, oh, he's from down under. He says, John, I'm originally from Egypt. I live in Melbourne, Australia now though for a couple of years. I have been sober since June 2011. I'm still trying to work out how to enjoy life on life's, life's terms while still clean. I found your show through searching for 12 steps in TuneIn Radio. I like the idea of listening to recovering people sharing their own experience. I'm trying to get connected to you guys through Facebook. Appreciate your service, mate. Blessings, Mark M. Well, mate, Mark M, right back at you. And I know for a fact that Mark M was able to get into that secret Facebook group. Thank you so much, Mark. We're glad to have you along for the ride. Kathy M writes in, and Kathy was writing to me and Brenda. And Brenda has an episode that we recorded. Brenda J, she is absolutely van. Fantastic. If you haven't heard that episode, I would highly advise that you go back and do such. The name of the episode is called Brenda J. Do Not Be Discouraged. And she wrote in, Kathy wrote in, and she said, Hi, John and Brenda. What an episode. So much God, hope, truth. I could listen to it over and over. Brenda, I am so grateful for your recovery and the gifts you are sharing with the world. Your story about your dad's death brought memories of my mom's death. She was 23 years sober in AA. She died three days after her sobriety anniversary. I was holding her hand and my sister's, and we said the Lord's Prayer. I felt her move through me, Brenda. I felt God's presence. I wasn't sober at the time. How I wish I could share my sobriety with my mom now. I don't work AA. I work a different 12-step program, but I study the big book and the 12 and 12, and I find a way out through the steps and God. I love your message of hope. 
You have touched my heart, and I thank you, Kathy M. Well, thank you for sharing that tender moment with us, Kathy, at a public level. I know I got you in touch with Brenda. Um, I hope you all can continue the conversation from there. And by the way, I will say this. If any of you are interested in contacting one of the speakers that you have heard for one reason or another, you want to send me an email at john at silverspeak.com. I will pass that on and leave it to their discretion as if they want to get in contact with you. Ginger writes in on Instagram. She said, I can't thank you enough for your podcast. I'm going through a divorce right now and having to work four 12-hour shifts a week. I listen to your podcast to and from work and anytime I'm in my car. I've been a dry drunk for the past couple of years. I have a new sponsor and a new Al-Anon, both a new AA sponsor and an Al-Anon sponsor. I've surrendered to my higher power and all of these new experiences are happening. I'm so grateful for the fellowship and the steps. Keep it up. Uh, Keep it simple. Love, Ginger, uh, from Arizona, with the sobriety date of September 10th of 2009. Well, thank you, Ginger, for writing in. I'm sorry about the time that you're going through right now. I'm sure if you look around the rooms of AA and Al-Anon, you will find tons of people who have been through that same experience. AJ writes in, and he says, John, thanks for the amazing podcast. I am coming up on nine months sober, and I am so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. I finally have reached, or finally had reached the gift of desperation and sought help. Thanks again for the amazing podcast. I use it as an addition to the meetings I attend and not as as a substitute. It's an amazing addition and always seems to be exactly what I need every time I listen. Thanks again, AJ. Well, AJ, that is exactly what I intended this podcast to be. I do not, repeat, do not want this to be a substitute for meetings. Now, I know that there are some people in certain areas areas in a certain circumstances that cannot make it to meetings. And and I get that. And I'm glad that we're able to provide that for you. But for those of you who are able to get to those meetings, believe me, if you have a chance between listening to one of my podcasts and actually going out there and being in a meeting itself with people face to face, I highly encourage you to go out there and to get into those meetings. So Liz writes in, she says, Hey, John, my name is Liz and I'm an alcoholic and so much more. (laughs) I get that. I currently live in Hollywood, Florida, but I'm originally from Connecticut. My sober date is August 20th of 2018. I can't just pick one of my favorite guests from your podcast since they're all so amazing. Hey, I agree with that, Liz. I first started listening when I found sobriety. I have found so many other recovery shows, but none with a host that shows more empathy and positive encouragement. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. I appreciate that. Thank you for living in the solution. Keep up the good work. If you're ever in the South Florida, give us a ring. 
Regards, Liz R. Thank you so much, Liz. I just so much enjoyed that email. God bless you. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the final piece of listener feedback for the week. This is from John M. Not me, John M. I promise you, I am not writing into the show planting listener feedback here. This is a real piece of feedback from a real listener named John M. He says, John, you're doing a great job on your podcast. I listen in my car and at the gym. I've heard that a lot with the gym. Every episode has something for me to take away. I wish I could take notes, but instead I just listen to them again. Smiley face. Thanks again, John M. All right. So everybody, Thank you so much for writing in, everybody. Thanks for getting in touch. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for being part of this special community. And I'll talk to you again next week. God bless.